Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this morning, it's, um, as I reflect on the week, it's hard to imagine that uh, there's actually something that could be newsworthy above and beyond any news we have about COVID and Corona. Uh, but this week in the Jewish world, in fact, there was, and if you'll uh, permit me with a little bit of an allegory, there's a bit of a bomb that went off in the Jewish world, and I want to share that news with you, and I believe uh, a little bit at the end that I could share with something with you from the Torah portion. The news that came out of Israel this week was that Israel's Supreme Court made a ruling that threatened to um, undermine some of the political stability within Israel. And yet, uh, as it is with things that involve change, usually change is both destabilizing and restabilizing. The decision that came from the Supreme Court of Israel was recognizing de facto that both conservative and reform conversions within the state itself, we're not talking about conversions that are done outside of the country, that's a whole separate discussion, perhaps for another day, but reform and conservative conversions done within the borders of the state of Israel, that they must be recognized by the state as Jewish, both legally and practically. But in essence, let's say this. What they're actually saying is not so much that reform and conservative conversions would, should be recognized, I mean, in fact, that it was, but really what it was in the decision was a blow to the hegemony of the monopolistic control that the ultra-Orthodox have over religious life in Israel. Predictably, not surprisingly, the responses within Israel and throughout the Jewish world were um, as what you would have thought. Amongst the ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox, uh, both outside of Israel and within Israel, there was a lamenting uh, that the Jewish character of the state was being threatened. On the opposite side, amongst the non-Orthodox, uh, Jewish community members, both in Israel and outside of Israel, there was a deep sigh of relief that finally, for the millions and millions and millions of Jews who do not identify themselves either in practice or even just in labeling themselves as orthodox, that their form of religious expression would be given legitimacy. It is odd to note, although many certainly have, that it's strange that in the Jewish state, it's the place where Jews have the least amount of religious freedom. And so the Supreme Court of Israel issued this ruling. And in truth, the only reason why, if you pull the, uh, the corner, excuse me, if you pull the curtain back a little bit and you look deeper inside, you realize that the only reason why this came to the Supreme Court in the first place is that now for almost 20 years, that the Israeli government's successive iterations of it, in particular under the rulership of Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister, that they have undertaken steps time and time again to not address the issue. Committees have been convened, reports have been issued, suggestions have been heard, and yet each and every time it comes forward to the Knesset, for it to be voted and enacted, it's always been put on the side because the ultra-Orthodox have repeatedly refused to engage in the issue. And why is that important? And that is because of the very fragile coalition that the Israeli government 
is currently working on and has worked on for now, once again, almost 20 years, relies heavily upon the participation of the small sliver of ultra-Orthodox parties to provide the coalition. Before we go and beat up the current prime minister, he's taken a beating lately enough, we don't have to add to it, it should be noted that the coalition building that Israeli governments have done with the ultra-Orthodox parties didn't begin with Israel's current prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu. It actually began with Yitzhak Rabin. It was Rabin who, in forming a coalition government, was amongst the first to bring in the ultra-Orthodox parties. And as a result of that, he would need to hear and also engage in some deal-making with them to listen to their interests. But let's take a step back. The step back I want to take with you is where did this all begin? When you look, strangely enough, in the state of Israel today, the ultra-Orthodox represent almost 20% of the population, maybe 23%, but really, by any statistical measure, they are a decided minority. And so how did it come that this minority came to control the religious life, the Jewish character of the country, over the majority of the country? There's two dates in particular to remember. One is 1939. In 1939, the British convened what's called the, excuse me, 1936. The British convened what is now known as the Peel Commission. They wanted to know and ascertain if the Jews uh, in Palestine then were able to self-govern. Ben-Gurion realizing that perhaps the ultra-Orthodox would not want to be governed by secular Zionists, therefore imperiling the perception of the British that the Jews could live with each other, and self-govern themselves, Ben-Gurion went and made a deal with them. He said, we'll give you control over the religious institutions of the country if you tell the British that you're happy to be governed by the Zionists. They passed with flying colors. After the state was founded, the next important date is 1952. Ben-Gurion then goes to the ultra-Orthodox leaders, and he says to them, in exchange, in exchange for deferments for army service, for ultra-Orthodox men, that they would agree to participate in the society and support the government. They agreed. At that time, the deferments were numbered, I think, roughly about 350. In other words, that there were 350 ultra-Orthodox men that applied for deferments from serving in the army because they were pursuing religious studies. Today, the number, I believe, is more than 100,000. In no way, shape, or form could the early Zionists could have possibly imagined the picture that we see today. And that is because the early founders of the Zionist movement particularly in Israel, with the founding of the state, they were a Jewish version of what we call wasps. They were white, they were atheists, socialists, and they were paratroopers. And in their mind, they couldn't imagine that in a generation or two that there would be anything of significance left of the religious communities within the state of Israel. That secularism, Israeliism, would convert everybody it would come into contact with. But today... In fact, what we have is 
We have the remainders of those agreements that were made in 1936 and 1952, but the character of the state has changed considerably. Where the divide in Israel today is not between those who believe in religion and those who don't believe in Israel, who don't believe in religion. The old terms we used or used to use in Israel were the religious and the secular. It's not true anymore. Like many things in life, in Israel, religious life is incredibly found on a spectrum of people who are completely unobservant, people who are devoutly ultra-Orthodox observant, and there's a lot of people in the middle. The ultra-Orthodox want to maintain the control over the religious institutions, number one, because it provides funding for their religious institutions and schools, but number two also, because the ability to say who is a Jew and who's not a Jew, the ability to say and determine who counts as one of us, who's on the inside and who's on the outside, is an intoxicating power. And once you're given that kind of power, why would you ever want to let go of it? Where everyone has to come to you in order to gain the stamp of legitimacy. It was rightly noted this week in one of the articles I'd read that by virtue of me being born of a Jewish mother, that no one would ever follow me around or threaten to take away my Jewish identity if I didn't live up to the standards that people expected of me. But in Israel, it is not at all unheard of that converts long after they pass their conversion process are threatened repeatedly by ultra-Orthodox authorities that if they don't live up to the ultra-Orthodox standards of Jewish living, that their conversions would be revoked, which is an unprecedented Jewish legal concept, never before imagined, ever, where personal autonomy in Jewish life is considered to be the sine qua non of human life. That once someone takes upon themselves a responsibility, you're not the judge of them anymore. It is between them and the God of the people of Israel and nothing else. I stand here this morning not saying to you that I know what the outcome of this is going to be. Many times in the past, over the course of recent history, we've been greeted by what appears to be explosive news, only to hear that it is trebled and moderated by some legalistic issues. But I have to share with you that this, well, this feels a little bit different. And that maybe, just maybe, that there is a process now beginning within the state to confront some of these long-standing iniquities that are built into the system. Things that began before the state existed or just after it existed. And this is not in any way, shape, or form to condemn, to condemn the ultra-Orthodox communities. They have a right to political representation. They certainly have a right as all, as all societal bodies to look after their own interests. But I guess almost all of us would agree that there's a line that every group has to draw in allowing others also to live in the matter in which that they would like to live. That everyone should be entitled to the freedom of religious expression, no matter where you live in the world. Rather than lament over where things are at, I was reminded this week as I read the Torah portion in preparation of sharing this morning with you, 
I read the story about the Egel Zahav, about the golden calf that the Israelites built when Moses went upon the top of the mountain. And of course, at that point, there could have been great despair to be found amongst the people and Moses and God. That after, but months after being taken out of the land of Egypt, being brought into freedom and the redemption of, of, of their new lives, that God could have simply thrown up its hands and said, what was the point of all this? After all that they've seen, they learn nothing. And yet I was reminded of the words of the great, the great Zionist writer and scholar. His name was Asher Ginsburg. Ginsburg says it's important to remember as we read the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, as we recall even our own history, that the arc of evolution is long, which is to say that in order for us to get to where we want to go, to dream and understand not only what we want to be, but to become what we should be, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's true not only for us as human beings. This never-ending sense of the person that I want to be is an, is an ever-present activity that I engage in every day. We have to be patient with ourselves. But also for us as a people, it takes time to become something. And so, as we read in the Torah portion this morning, that even the building of a golden calf in the end didn't deter God from understanding that we would become what we were meant to be. And as we hear the news this week, we realize that it's no different for us today. The state and us, Israel, and the Jewish communities throughout the world are in a never-ending act of growing into what we're supposed to be. Shabbat shalom, everyone.